We are looking together here on Wednesday night at some religious errors. We have looked at um, errors pertaining to salvation. We're going to be going into the area of worship, worship tonight, particularly uh, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper. And so I'd like for us to begin in 1 Corinthians 11, but also have in mind uh, at least two other passages, and that will be Matthew 26, 26 to 29, and also Luke 22, around verses 18 and 19. So let's be ready to work at this together and notice uh, these passages. Okay. In 1 Corinthians 11, When Paul gets to the Lord's Supper, I want you to notice something with me. Notice in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says, Now I commend you. Some of the older versions have, I praise you because you remember me and everything and you maintain the ordinances and traditions as I have delivered them to you. Good. But then look what happens when you get down to verse 17. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I do not praise you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. But then, notice verse 20, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. So Paul has some rather harsh language for these brethren, because they are not partaking of the Lord's Supper as it ought to be done. Now, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 11, Matthew 26, Luke 22, back and forth. I want us to notice some errors that are made out in the world. Three major ones, and maybe a fourth one, but three major ones. We'll start in the Catholic Church world, and then we'll work over to um, some other matters, and then we will end with... Uh, the frequency, which is something that concerns us. All right. So let's begin in the Catholic Church world. Okay. The Catholic Church focuses on seven sacraments. Among those seven is something they call the Eucharist. Okay. It's just a word that means thanksgiving. But it's their word really for the Lord's Supper. And within their observance of the Lord's Supper, they have something what they call, and I'm going to try to say this word, transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Okay, so hear the word substance in there, and hear the word trans. You know what it all means. The word trans means to cross over. Cross over. Okay, you hear about transgender those folks who want to cross over from the gender they have to another gender, very wicked, 
very wicked, okay, transgender, to cross over. The Catholics believe that when they partake of the wine and the unleavened bread, that that substance crosses over to become the literal flesh and blood of Jesus. Trans-substance. Trans-substance. Okay. And so we're going to focus on that error for, another, for a minute or two. Okay. Now, of course it's not right, but how do you go about it? If you run into somebody and they're, they're believing this, what do you... What do you say about it? Okay. So let's turn to Matthew 26 right quick and notice uh, a couple things. Matthew 26. Now when you get to Matthew 26 and verse 26, Jesus and his disciples are focusing on a Jewish feast. What's the name of that Jewish feast? Right before the death of Jesus. The Passover. The Passover. And so, Jesus is going to do some talking here, not just about the Passover, but about a new feast coming along that he's going to establish. Matthew 26, 26 to 29, you'll see it in your Bible. But just think about this. There Jesus is, and he's talking about this feast, and he's standing there before them. He's still in his, his body of flesh and blood. Okay. So you know when he talks about take this bread and eat it and drink of this fruit of the vine, that he's not talking about his own body and flesh and blood because he's standing there before them. He's still in his body. Okay. So that's not what he's talking about. Okay. But we have to just simply remember figurative language. And there's a lot of figurative language, language that will say something that represents something else. We use it all the time. We, don't, we use it so much, sometimes we don't even know we're using it. We don't really stop and think about it. But when Jesus here in Matthew 26, notice with me for a second. In Matthew 26, in verse 26, it says, As they were eating, that is the Passover meal, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Okay. Now this is figurative language. In other words, here is something, this unleavened bread, this represents my body. Okay. Keep reading. Verse 27, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink. And what does your Bible say in verse 29? When Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this what? Fruit of the vine. Okay. So ask yourself, what is being represented here? Well, Jesus' blood. What is going to represent that blood? The fruit of the vine. See that? Just as the unleavened bread is going to represent his body. So notice, and just as Jesus' own words, he, he says, this is the, drink this, this is the blood of the covenant, which is going to be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He says, now, when you start drinking of this, I will drink it with you in my Father's kingdom, and, 
And what you will be drinking is not my blood, but the fruit of the vine. See? So what is represented the blood? How's it going to be represented through the fruit of the vine? So it's figurative language. One time, and this is in Luke 13, 31 and 32, but one time the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, hey, Herod is trying to kill you. And Jesus looked at them and said, you go tell that fox that I'm out here and I'm casting out demons and I continue to do my work. Luke 13, 31, 32. Now look at what Jesus is doing there. Go tell that fox. He's not saying, literally, that Herod has four legs as an animal and has a bushy tail. Okay. But rather he's using fox to represent Herod's character. Okay. We do that all the time. Okay. That's what he's doing. In John 15, verse 1, Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Okay. Of course he's not being literal there. He's showing us that, that for us to grow spiritually, we've got to be in Christ. His words have got to be in us. We've got to, just, as, just as the branches have to stay in the vine to get their nutrients, so we've got to stay with Christ and in Christ and in his words in order to be able to grow spiritually. So he's letting one thing represent another. Okay. We, do, we do that all the time. So this is something that our friends in the Catholic Church and, our, and all these different um, religious leaders you might see in the Catholic Church, they, they, they don't understand this very common sense approach to Scripture. Okay. And so think about that, how that Jesus is standing right there, so it couldn't be as literal flesh and blood. And also think about the type of language uh, that he is using. Also, in your Bible, you'll see in 1 Corinthians 11, and you'll see Jesus say here in Matthew 26, and also Luke uh, 22, 18 and 19, he will say, and these words are, yeah, these words are on our table up here. What does this say? This do in what? Remembrance. It's real easy to see what Jesus is setting up here. He's not, he's not setting up the situation where he's going to actually be here literally with us, flesh and blood. He's setting up a memorial. Right? This do and remembers me. You, you'll have this unleavened bread. You'll have this fruit of the vine. And this do in remembrance of me. Okay. We might remember uh, when Joshua, and uh, he, he brought the people in the book of Joshua, across the Jordan River. Remember that? And God said, take how many stones out of the river? Twelve. Twelve. And set them up so that later on your children will ask, what means these stones? What do you mean by these stones? And then you'll be able to use those stones as representation of what the wonderful works that God had done in bringing you out of the Egypt and bringing you on into the promised land, even in a miraculous, miraculous way over the Jordan there. And so it's a memorial that, that the Lord is, is setting up. So this doing remembrance for me. Now, let's turn to John 6 and notice before we leave transubstantiation. Got it out that time, didn't it? John 6, this is a verse that the, our, our friends in the Roman Catholic Church will use uh, often. John 6, 52 starting in verse 52. The Jews, um, 
then disputed among themselves, saying, How can the, this man give us his flesh uh, to eat? Okay. So in verse 51, Jesus had just said, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give you, uh, that I give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Okay. So how can he give his flesh to us to eat? All right, let's keep reading. Verse 53, John 6. So Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So the consequence of eating Jesus' flesh and blood is that you're going to have Life, life means forgiveness, and then ultimately eternal life. Okay. What does Jesus mean here? Okay. Whatever he means here, it, the consequence of it, the result of it is going to be life, eternal life. Okay. But all you got to do is let your eyes go on down to verse 63, same, same chapter, verse 63. Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you our spirit and our life. That's where he's getting to on this. He's, he's grabbing their attention by talking about eating flesh and blood and he's trying to get them to think and discern. But ultimately, this is where he's going to. It's the same teaching throughout Scripture. If, if we continue to feast on the words of Jesus, okay, figuratively speaking, eating of them, ingesting them, into our very souls, then we will have life and ultimately eternal life. Okay. And that's what this passage is teaching. This is not a verse about the Lord's Supper. Okay. This, this should not be read. John 6 should, ne should not be read before the Lord's Supper. This is Jesus. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper here. He's talking about dwelling in His words. Okay. Eating His words. Living on His words. Feeding on his words. Okay. And so uh, we just want to talk about that error concerning the Lord's Supper first, a transubstantiation. Okay. And, um, but here you have some clear verses and ideas, especially the figurative language. Okay. Language that represents something else. Uh, we, we use that all the time. All right, the second error I want us to talk about, the second mistake people make about the Lord's Supper is the number of cups they use uh, when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Okay. And there are some, and, and this was very much an issue several years ago, and I think some, some brethren are coming back to it, but it used to be a teaching where people would, would say that a congregation should only drink of one cup okay, and pass that one cup around. Okay. Now in 1 Corinthians uh, 11 again and in verse uh, number 24 and 25 25 especially in the same way also Paul referring back to when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the same way also he took the cup and after the supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Okay. So take this cup. 
So he took the cup after the supper. And so brethren think because Jesus said this cup is the new covenant. And since there's one covenant, one New Testament, then there ought to be one cup. Okay. But again, it's a misinformation. It's just a, it's a, um, it's a mistake on how you, how you treat language. Okay. You've got to allow common language to be used in the Bible. This, again, is figurative language. This is language that represents. We do it all the time. This is what you might call putting the container for the contents. Okay. Um, somebody comes by your house, and they drink coffee. And somebody asks you later, uh, did he like your coffee? And you respond and say, well, he drank the whole pot. Well, see, that, see what we did then? We used the pot, the container, to represent what's in the pot. We do that all the time, and that's what Jesus is doing here with the cup. Drink of this cup. Well, the cup represents what's inside uh, the cup, which is uh, the fruit of the vine. This is used in Scripture way back in, in Genesis um, 6 as God is explaining why he's about to destroy the world and why Noah need to build, needs to build the ark. Genesis 6 and verse uh, 11, uh, God pronounces that the earth was corrupt. The earth was corrupt. Okay. Now, what is God talking about there? Is he talking about the dirt? Is he talking about the trees, roots, and rocks of the little earth? No, he's using... The container for the contents. He's talking about the people on the earth. Just like in John 3, 16, for God so loved the what? World. The world. And it's the people in the world that God loves. That he gave, that he, he, he so loved that he gave his only begotten uh, son. And so it's just that simple. When Jesus took the cup and said, drink of this, the container stands for uh, the contents. Just as Jesus said, take, eat this bread, okay, so he also said, he, that's the first part of his supper, eat this bread. The bread is part of the element that you, that's to be eaten. And so he certainly means not the cup is to be digested. He's not focusing on the cup, he's focusing on the contents of the cup. Okay. In, what is it, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 10 if you're over there still, Paul also speaks of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10 um, throughout the chapter, really. Verse 21 says um, he's warning about idolatry. You know, some of the brethren still dabbling in idolatry, but they're also coming to church on Sunday. All right. He says, verse 21, 1 Corinthians 10, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now notice, table and cup there. Okay. One is just as literal as the other. Okay. It's not, he's not focusing on the table and the cup. He's, he's focusing on what's, what's on the table, what may, might be placed up front or placed somewhere in their assembly that they were partaking of and not uh, focusing on the table itself, not focusing on the cup itself. Okay. 
Alright, so you see that, how the, the language is used, and you see what God is doing here. Now, you'll notice that Jesus says drink. You can't drink a literal cup. You drink what's inside the cup. All right. So that's enough about that. Now, let's go on to the third mistake people make. This is most dominant in our area, and that is the frequency of the Lord's Supper. Now, how would you quickly establish the fact that the Lord's Supper is to be taken on the first day of the week? What, what would be the first thing that comes to your mind? What would you say? Hmm? Oh, okay. On the first day of the week, meaning every, every first day of the week. Okay. All right. Such passages as um, Acts 20 and verse 7. And then First um, Corinthians 16, verse 2. But Acts 20, verse 7 is a, is a time when Paul, an apostle, and others with him uh, were in the city of what? What's that city? The city of Troas, I think. And they stuck around a little bit longer than what really they needed to, but they stuck around so they could meet on the first day and partake of the Lord's Supper to, to break bread uh, with the brethren. First day of the week. Okay. Right. Now we could talk quite a bit about when the Lord's Supper should be taken, but it's, it's pretty clear language as Brother Marl has brought about. I want to think about some object, objections that are made uh, to doing that. And these objections are used by our, our neighbors down the road okay, uh, here and there. So we want to be helpful. One objection that is made is that if you take of it uh, every week, it takes away from the sacredness of it. That you make it mundane. Mundane. What would you say about that? I think that's a problem in the heart. That's a problem in the heart. Not, not a problem of frequency. Okay. All right. All right. What else would you say about it? Do what? Okay, we're singing and praying every every service, and we don't, you know, that doesn't. We don't worry about that becoming mundane. Right? In fact, aren't we told to pray without what? Pray without ceasing, First Thessalonians uh, five. And so, uh, I don't think that you know I don't think that's a fair thing to say. God tells us to observe several uh, practices on a continual basis. Acts 17, 11, and 12 talks about the Bereans, how they search the scriptures how often? Daily. Daily. So it, as Julie said, it's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the frequency. We're supposed to be digging into God's word and praying to him without ceasing. And so uh, partaking of the supper every week uh, shouldn't affect the sacredness uh, of it. it shouldn't do that.
So most of the congregations that do not partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week are taking up a contribution for what Brother Roger is saying as they ought to on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 tells us that's the very thing we ought to do. Okay. Why have that respect for the giving but not for the Lord's Supper? Yeah, we're just not... The heart's in the wrong place. And I think sometimes people just don't stop and think about it. They just, they allow some religious teacher to just say things and they just think, well, he wouldn't have said it if he didn't know what he's talking about, but that's, that's not how it is. Now, generally speaking, spending more time with your wife and spending more time with your children enhances that relationship, right? It, do, it, it doesn't make it mundane. Right? It doesn't take away the sacredness of your relationship with your wife and your children. And so, continuing in prayer, studying on a daily basis, and coming together and worshiping on a, on a weekly basis, uh, that's not going to take away. We've we got to keep our heart uh, in it. Now, think about this. How, how, how many times did Jesus die for sin? How many times was he resurrected from the dead for sin? One. Now, what is it that brings folks together on Sunday? Why Sunday? Why that day? Why up and down this road, all throughout the county, up and down the state and across the country, you can drive around on Sunday, people are there. Okay. But most of those assemblies are not partaking the Lord's Supper. Why are they there? Why Sunday? Is it not because that's the resurrection day? But we're not fearful of celebrating the resurrection too much. Right? We're not fearful of giving of our money too much. Why are we leaving out Jesus' death and the sacredness of that? Absolutely, the first day of the week is sacred and should be remembered. We should come together and worship on the first day of the week because that's the day of the Lord's resurrection. It's the day the Lord has set aside for us to assemble. Okay, no doubt about that. But on that day, he also set up the Lord's uh, Supper. And so if we're going to observe the resurrection of Jesus, doesn't it make sense to, to observe his death as well? Doesn't all that go together? Doesn't, isn't it easy to see what the Lord wanted to see happen? Okay. The death and the resurrection and that day all go together. It doesn't make any sense to partake of the Lord's Supper on any other day other than the first day, because that's the day. That's the day he came forth uh, from the dead. So. All right. Let's think about it. So some people say, well, if you assemble and you partake of it in a frequent way, it's going to take away the sacredness of it. It's going to make it mundane. And 
mundane. I don't think that, I think we can all see that. That's not true. But what if somebody says to you, well, when Jesus was talking about the Lord's Supper, he was actually observing the Passover feast, and the Passover was taken on an annual basis, once a year. And so doesn't that mean that's what the Lord's Supper should be? Shouldn't the Lord's Supper be annually instead of weekly? Since Jesus was sitting there and he was, he was observing the Passover... Well, the moral is right there on the right track. It's, it's a different system. It's a different, different law. So Brother Marl is saying that, that uh, this is a new covenant. That's what Jesus is explaining. And Julie is saying that, that uh, the Lord promised, I will drink this with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay. The kingdom was officially established on the day of Pentecost. It would be 50 days later after the Passover and all that came uh, to be. It's interesting that on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.42, it says they continued steadfastly in the breaking of the bread, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of the bread. So the day of Pentecost also was the first day of the week, and so it makes complete sense scripturally to partake of that on the first day of the week. Okay. So it's a new it's a new law. It's a new purpose. It's a new, it's a new system. Um, we've got the Savior on earth. We've got the Savior dying, the Savior being resurrected. We've got the establishment of the kingdom. So it's not like the Passover. Now, the Passover pointed to Jesus. And several of those acts and ordinances and institutions of the old law pointed down to Jesus and the church. But that doesn't mean that all the elements of the old come into the new things. Okay. The Old Testament tabernacle points to the New Testament church. Okay. But that doesn't mean that we offer animal blood. Right? The Old Testament priest pointed down to our time as well, but it's different. We don't just have, we don't have certain men who are our priests. We are all priests. According to Peter, 1 Peter 2 and 5 and 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. And so it's a new law, new purpose, and new order of things. And the old did point down to our time, but um, uh, that's as far as it goes. Okay, very good. All right. And so we can see that the frequency of the Lord's Supper is very clearly taught in the New Testament and that uh, we need to pay close attention to it. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 11 for a second. 1 Corinthians 11. In verse 25 once again read, 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Sometimes our religious friends will say, see, Paul said that twice. As often as you eat it, as often as you drink it. As if Paul was saying, it doesn't really matter how often you eat and drink, as long as you're eating and drinking. Okay. They're, they're taking Paul's phrase there and saying, well, when the notion strikes you, as long as you do it, then uh, Paul doesn't, he's not instructing us as to when to do it, but rather just, as, just that you do it. Okay. And notice here he says, as often, verse 25, do this as often as you drink it, and verse 26, as often as you eat this bread. As if Paul was saying, uh, it doesn't really matter when or how many times, just as long as you're doing. You know, He's definitely saying it's a regular thing. The main thing he's saying in these verses is, he, Paul's not focusing on the frequency here. He's, he's, he's focusing on the manner. He's, fo he's getting us to focus on our hearts. Notice it as you just read it together here. Um, if you just keep reading here in verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, verse 27, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and then let him so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So Paul is focusing here on, on the manner when, when we do take it, take it on the first day of the week. When we do take it, he wants us focusing on the body in the blood of our Lord and the significance of that. He wants us fully concentrating on that. Okay. You know what? If the frequency doesn't matter, then wouldn't once in a lifetime be okay? If, if it doesn't matter how often, then if a person just comes along and says, well, I partook of the Lord's Supper one time, then wouldn't one time be okay? But the, the ideal is, and the clear teaching is, that, that God has legislated it. He has regulated not just the elements, but the frequency of it as well. Okay. I think when you put together several of these verses, it seems that, you know, Acts 20, verse 7, upon the first day of the week, when they came together to break bread, that was their purpose. And then even in Acts uh, 11, again, verse 20 says, when you come together in one place, they come together in one place. And we know that was on the first day of the week. And then when he put the giving in there, he assumed they were going to be together on the first day of the week. Yeah. That was going to be time to do it because you're there anyway. You're right. going to be there. You're going to be breaking bread. So give the offer. Right. Yeah, it was assumed they were going to be together in order to take the bread. And he said, while you're together, go ahead and give of your means uh, as well. Going back to this statement in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, Paul said, 
when you come together, it is not possible for you. You're not here to protect the Lord's Supper. Isn't that what he says? I don't want to say it wrong here. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you're coming together to eat. In other words, um, you got two boys that come to school and they're in the classroom and they're doing everything but what they're supposed to be doing. And the teacher finally says, you two are not here to study, to learn. Okay, so what is she saying? She's implying that the purpose of your coming together was to learn and study. And that was the problem in Corinth. They were coming together on the first day but it wasn't to eat the Lord's Supper. They were too divided. They were, they were not focusing on the body and blood of the Lord. They had turned it into almost like a circus. Okay. But the teaching is clear, no matter whether you're just looking at it straightforward or if you're looking at it from, from backwards to forwards, Paul is saying, when you come together on the first day of the week, the purpose is to take the Lord's Supper. So what we've tried to do this evening is to look at three major mistakes that are made. You've got the Catholic world who are trying to make the flesh and blood literal. You've got some ultra-conservative brethren who are trying to say, well, uh, the cup means cup, and you just use one cup for the whole congregation, and that's, that's uh, not even close to being right. But then the frequency, the frequency. It means a lot to the Lord. Okay. But then the fourth error would be what you guys have been mentioning all along, and that is the heart. The heart. It's possible to come together and go through the proper structure of worship, but if our heart is not in it, then we've not really worshipped. Okay. Let me ask you this, Brother Marl. Suppose a person comes here on Sunday morning and they eat the bread and drink the juice. Okay. And then they come back on Sunday night and they say, I'm going to go back there and eat the supper again because this morning I was distracted. My mind was elsewhere. Has that ever happened to you? Would it be okay to go back there and take it again? And that's a great emphasis because the mind and heart is just as important in worship as the acts of worship themselves. And so I would say absolutely that if you're, if you're here on Sunday morning and there can be a thousand things that are going on in your life or there can even be things going on in the assembly, okay, and your mind's not where it ought to be, it would be absolutely proper to, be, to come on Sunday night and... and what do you think, Brother Paul? And take it again? Just because you want to make sure you worship the Lord uh, properly. We don't worship by accident. We have the intent. Good. Marl's saying we don't worship by accident. Well, that's why many people I know, and myself included, are rebaptized. Okay. They have done everything correctly as far 
Because now your, because now your heart, your heart's in the right place. You understand much more. That's that's a good comparison. Good compare. I can't tell you a number of folks who I have baptized, in ages 40, 50, 60, 70, who did that very thing. Who looked back on their baptism at a younger age and said, you know, I just, I just don't think I was there. I don't think. And so they wanted to be sure. Be sure. All right. Well, thank you for walking through these scriptures and these ideas with me. Um, and we'll talk further about this on down the road, but uh, appreciate it very much.